Good morning. My name is Jacob Rodriguez. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Resurrection. And this is the first Sunday of Lent, that season where we are journeying with Christ to the cross. Traditionally, during this season, it's a time for the church to fast, to pray, to give sacrificially as a way of reorienting our hearts to seek the kingdom of God rather than the kingdoms of this world. And when we seek the Lord in this way, we encounter God in a fresh way. And we come face to face with ourselves. We realize that we do not have what it takes within ourselves to overcome sin that so easily drags us down. But thanks be to God, Jesus has made us a part of his kingdom. And he has taught us the practices of the kingdom that by the power of the indwelling spirit can lead us on the path of life. For the season of Lent, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we're going to learn together what are these practices of Jesus' kingdom. Today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, you can turn there now to the Bible, we're going to focus on the practice of reconciliation. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, you call us to follow Jesus through the wilderness, all the way to Calvary, in the hope of resurrected life. Speak to us from your word now, and kindle in our hearts a desire for your kingdom above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, who doesn't love a good love story? Unless you're a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> who doesn't love a good love story? You're probably all familiar with the immortalized love story of Romeo and Juliet. Perhaps the extent of your knowledge of this love story is in the lyrics, you were Romeo, you were throwing pebbles, and my daddy says, stay away from Juliet, etc., etc., etc. Sorry, you're not getting the whole set of versions. But did you know that the apocalyptic romance of Romeo and Juliet is not the main point of that story? The backstory is that there is a generations-old cycle of anger and murder persisting between these two families, Romeo's family, the Montagues, and Juliet's family, the Capulets. And the simple law, you shall not murder, was not enough to break that cycle. Something more drastic was needed to break it. As fate would have it, something more drastic did indeed come to pass. Spoiler alert. Romeo and Juliet together die a tragic death as a result of their family's unrelenting feud. The tragedy of their death, however, takes place in a churchyard tomb, and it compels their families to bury the hatchet and reconcile right there in the churchyard. Only something drastic could have broken that cycle. In Jesus' day, Jesus' own people, the Jews, were stuck in cycles of anger and hatred against many foreign enemies. The Samaritans, the Greeks, the Romans, they also had their own intra-Jewish conflicts. Galileans versus Jerusalemites, Pharisees versus the priesthood, tax collectors versus anti-Roman insurrectionists, and the list goes on and on. And when Jesus calls a ragtag band of Jewish fishermen to be his disciples, his plan was to proclaim to the world the kingdom of God through these apostles. As we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount today, Jesus' kingdom was about justice, righteousness, mercy, and peace. 
Now, when Jesus proclaimed this kingdom in his sermon, was he burying his head in the sand? Or was he clinging to a false or a vain hope? Didn't Jesus remember that just five years before he had stayed in the temple as a 12-year-old, the Roman governor had crucified 2,000 of his own countrymen right there in Jerusalem? Didn't Jesus remember that just a century earlier, the Jewish king and high priest, Alexander Janius, had crucified 800 of his own fellow Jews for opposing his rule? Didn't Jesus know these stories had grown up in the land of Israel? And yet, and yet, Jesus confronts this world full of hatred and disciples of violence with a radical new yet old command. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So, be reconciled to your brother. This is a daring mission. Jesus could go down as yet another overly idealistic visionary. How can Jesus speak this way with such confidence? What evidence does he give us that this new teaching would actually change the world? Now, to answer this question, we need to zoom out to see the big picture. Uh, reading Jesus' command here in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, without appreciating the broader context, would be like marveling at the Eagle Lunar Landing Module touching down on the moon while forgetting about the 109,360-foot-tall rocket that shot it all the way to the moon. So let's look at what the engine is, the power behind this amazing teaching, and see if it actually is powerful enough to send us to the moon, to the new creation. No, sorry, the new creation is not in the moon, but... <laughs> All right, so let's, let's kind of zoom out and see what's happening in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 1, it tells us that Jesus goes up on the mountain and he teaches his disciples when the crowds are all gathered. And this quite clearly should remind us of another mountain. Dan mentioned this on the Ash Wednesday service, that this points us to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where God, through Moses, revealed the law to the Israelites. And Jesus goes up on that mountain to uh, give them not a law that would overturn the old law. In fact, he's upholding that law. Rather, he's giving them the fullest meaning of that law. It's perfect interpretation. Moses said, thus saith the Lord, and proclaimed the law to the people of Israel. The rabbis of Jesus' day said, Moses gave the law to Joshua, and Joshua gave it to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to our teachers, and all the way to the rabbis who said, build a fence around the Torah. Jesus said, I say to you. He was teaching with the higher authority as the very mouth of the Lord. When Moses was on the mountain, the Lord revealed the plan of his kingdom for Israel to be a kingdom of priests for the life of the world. That's in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. On Jesus' mountain, he reveals the plan of that kingdom and how it would be fulfilled under his kingship. It's the kingdom of the heavens, as he calls it. In our translation, it's usually the kingdom of heaven. But it's quite literally translated the kingdom of the heavens, which in the original context is 
pointing to this new creational reign of righteousness and justice that is already in the heavenly realms where God is on the throne, but that is being revealed on earth through the teaching of Jesus and through the lives of his followers, his followers like you and me. Coming down from heaven in its fullness on the last day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus reveals his kingdom to his followers. And he gives them a mission to be the light of the world. A city on a hill. This is Matthew chapter 5 verses 14 and following. He says to his followers, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in the heavens. You see, Jesus is establishing an outpost for his kingdom on earth, not Jerusalem, which was soon to be burned to the ground by the Romans, but rather the city of God giving light and life to the world. And how is Jesus going to establish this outpost? How is he going to accomplish the true meaning of the law through his people? Not by abolishing the law or the prophets, as he promises in, in chapter 5, verse 17. The law and the prophets, meaning everything from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the entire Old Testament. Not by abolishing that, by no means. Rather, by showing the fullness of their intention. That is a way of life that leads to a righteousness that surpasses even the scribes and the Pharisees who had memorized every jot and every T in the Old Testament law. That's in verse 20 of our present chapter, chapter 5, verse 20. So what is this righteousness? This right living that surpasses even the scribes and the Pharisees? Brothers and sisters, it's an obedience that works towards justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, it is one that is motivated by the greatest commandment, to love God and to love neighbor. But this kind of righteousness cannot be attained simply by avoiding sin by following regulations. That's only one half of it. That would be like focusing on not driving off the road while you're on the way to grandma's house. The scribes and the Pharisees were so focused on not driving off the road that they forgot the destination. And Jesus brings our eyes back to that goal. To love God, to seek his kingdom, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That, my friends, that is the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And you know why it requires some intense spiritual heart surgery? which is exactly what Jesus is doing in the following section, verses 21 through 48. In this section, Jesus sets up what scholars have called the antitheses. Antitheses, setting up kind of what seem to be oppositions, but are rather showing how here's what was said, but now let me show you what is truly meant by what God said then. Jesus sets, up with, uh, sets this up with the following formula. You have heard that it was said, and then he goes on to show how that ancient regulation, while good in its prohibition of sin, was still insufficient to address the root cause of that sin. The first of these antitheses is our passage today, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. 
a warning against murder and anger, and a call to a higher righteousness, which brings us full circle back to that focus today. And his teaching in this five-verse passage can be summarized as follows. Ungodly anger leads to the judgment of God, so be reconciled to one another. Ungodly anger leads to the judgment of God, so be reconciled to one another. Remember, Jesus was speaking to a people who were stuck in cycles of anger and death. And really, this is a condition that describes all of humanity. So Jesus is speaking to us today as well. And Jesus' teaching provides a way to break free from that cycle. And he does, by, does so by showing two things. First of all, a higher standard. And secondly, a higher commandment. A higher standard and a higher commandment. Let's look, first of all, at that higher standard. In verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus here takes the law given through Moses on Sinai, and he does not abolish it. It's a, of course, it's a good law. But without its fullest interpretation, it does not in itself have the power to break the cycle that leads to perpetual murder and revenge. Murder and revenge. So Jesus takes things directly to the heart, and he draws the link from murder all the way back to its root cause, uncontrolled, selfish anger. You see, you don't get a free pass in Jesus' kingdom by saying, hey, I haven't killed anybody, so I'm all good. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, that same anger that can lead to murder actually resides in each one of our own hearts. Just think about the last time that you were stopped at a red light here in Washington, D.C., and the guy behind you, perhaps from Maryland, <laughs> when you didn't floor it, to turn green, lays it to his horn, and what kind of words bubble out from underneath you, and what words did you have to define to your children, or at least say, we'll tell you later. <laughs> this anger, it not only damages cars, <laughs> brothers and sisters, it destroys marriage. It harms children, it tears churches apart. Sure, pat yourself on the back if you haven't killed anybody. But there is a whole war waging inside of you that you could still be losing to anger. In verse 22, Jesus shows us what a downward spiral of anger, beginning with the inner simmering of being angry with your brother and sister, leads to an insult that belittles your brother or sister. Raka in its original language, literally meaning you empty head. And then leading to an even worse put down, you fool, which is literally translated, you moron. But it was worse back then. Jesus takes the rabbinic judgment against murder, judgment by the Sanhedrin court, and he extends it to the final judgment given by God, the hell of fire, and he applies it to anger. You might be thinking, whoa, Jesus, calm down, brother. I'm just PO'd at my brother. No biggie. I don't deserve hellfire for that. 
Why would Jesus take anger so seriously? Did you know that just days before the Serbians committed war crimes against the Albanians in Kosovo, Albanians and Serbs were neighbors, friendly with one another in many cases? Did you know that in the days just before the Rwandan genocide, there were numerous cases of Hutus and Tutsis in the same villages, doing the things that friendly neighbors do, sharing meals and helping each other with everyday needs? And when a collective anger motivated by fear and othering, which had been brewing unchecked for years, had bubbled up, the results gave way to one of the worst chapters in human history. And that same kind of anger resides in our hearts as the fallen human race. And it is only the grace of God that is restraining evil in our own country this very day. And every time I hear gunshots within a quarter mile of my own house, I'm reminded that unchecked anger can be lethal. And God takes it very seriously. And so should we. So, quick caveat here. Jesus is not saying that emotions are wrong. And there are even certain kinds of anger that are justified. What is wrong is the kind of anger that led Cain to kill his brother Abel. If anger is righteous, it will drive us to protect life and to work for justice. If anger is unrighteous, it will be centered on one's own selfish desires, and if left unchecked, it will grow into hatred for the one with whom you are angry. One kind of anger says, God is king and his law should be respected. The other kind of anger says, I should be king and don't you dare cross me the wrong way. So Jesus sets the standard much higher saying, it's not just about not killing people. Check your anger, brothers and sisters. But then he gives us a higher commandment, not just a prohibition of stay away from murder, stay away from anger. He introduces in verses 23 and 24 a higher commandment in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. And then coming back, offer your gift. Notice the location where someone remembers that his brother has something against him. This is the altar in the temple. If you were a pious Jew in Jesus' day, you would know that it was at that altar, on the Day of Atonement, that your sin was atoned for by the sacrificial lamb. And this was all pointing forward to Jesus, whose ultimate sacrifice would deal once for all with human sin and would accomplish true reconciliation vertically and paved the way for horizontal reconciliation between humans. So when we come to his altar today, living in the reign of King Jesus, when we come to this, the Lord's table, brother or sister, if you know that you have wronged someone who is your brother or sister in Christ, for your own sake, go, and make peace with them before you come to this table. If you know someone is angry against you for their sake, reconcile with them before you come 
to the Lord's table. And this is actually why we pass the peace before we come to the Lord's table. The peace of Christ be with you. Extend that hand. And even if you have to say, we need to get coffee this week. Start that road toward reconciliation. The Lord has given you, brother or sister, the opportunity this very morning. Wait no longer. In the final two verses of our passage, verses 25 and 26, Jesus gives us practical wisdom for why reconciliation is not only good for relationships within the people of God, but also for reconciliation for our enemies. We can see that there's some very practical ramifications for it. If you know that you have harmed someone, go to them right away and make things right if it is all possible with you. Live at peace with all men. It is for our own good that we should make restitution with those whom we have wronged, no matter how small the offense. Now, there is a caveat as a pastor I need to give about reconciliation. When we talk about reconciliation, this does not mean that abusers should be allowed to maintain relationships of abuse with victims under the guise of reconciliation. And this is why every church, including ours, has a robust, should have a robust, uh, safeguarding system. And Jesus' commands do not undermine the criminal justice system, for example. And in fact, our own passage today shows that Jesus actually supported the Sanhedrin. That's the, the Greek word that's used when he said anyone who calls his brother Rocco will be subject to the court. He literally says subject to the Sanhedrin. He's upholding the system of justice in his day. But these systems... While they can and they should function to restrain evil, this is a good function of these systems, of these support systems and structures, they still cannot heal the wounds and restore the broken relationships. Fortify those systems by all means. But look to the law of Christ for the only hope for true restitution, restoration, and reconciliation. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, the Gakacha Truth and Reconciliation Courts in Rwanda today, the testimony of Brent Jean, the young African-American man who in 2019, in the court of law, hugged the white officer who had killed his brother. These examples show us that there is a time, there is a place where the worst offenders can be rehumanized by the overwhelming power of forgiveness because of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Amen? Amen? Now this topic of reconciliation is dear to my heart for many reasons. I could talk, brothers and sisters, I could talk for hours about, about my uh, Burundian and Rwandan neighbors when I was in grad school, about one of my pastors who was from South Sudan, about how the, the many uh, brothers and sisters that I, that I made in Ethiopia from various people groups had practiced, experienced, and seen the power of God in reconciliation. In fact, this very morning, my phone was erupting because my brother from Ethiopia, this dear Christian, gave me yet another example, just one week old, of one of their reconciliation trainings. They go into this village. They meet this man. This man had one of his uh, siblings murdered by a family that went to his own church. And for seven years, he harbored the anger that started to plan how he might murder someone in that family 
for revenge. And you think we have it hard because some people are upset of others and vice versa because of how we vote. Brothers and sisters, this man repented publicly, confessing that anger, and he went to that family and they reconciled a week ago. This is not just some story that's in the textbook that you find in the theological library. Brothers and sisters, this revival is happening right now. Reconciliation is possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we celebrate at his table. And when we come and bring our offerings to the Lord, oh, my brothers and sisters, this is the opportunity to make right one with another. And when the world wrecked by strife and racial divisions and all kinds of, of, of vengeance against one another, sees this in the church. This will be the city on a hill, giving light and life to all who can see. Amen? And there's another reason why I want to share this this morning. Our church here, Church of the Resurrection, was birthed in a movement of reconciliation known as the East African Revival. The East African Revival was a movement of God's spirit in the late 1920s and 1930s, beginning in what would later become Rwanda, spreading to the territories that would later become Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, and Congo. And two central pillars in this movement were confession of sin and reconciliation. And reconciliation took place among indigenous Christians and European colonists across numerous ethnic groups in East Africa. Perpetrators of crimes would come forward confessing their sins, making restitution, repaying what they had stolen, and finding reconciliation with the families whom they had harmed. And although half a century later East Africa would see the horrors of war and genocide, it was the spiritual legacy of this East African revival that would provide the only hope for the post-genocide reconciliation that is still taking place today in what they call the Nakacha meetings, where people publicly confess their sins and are brought to restitution and bring restitution and forgive and receive forgiveness. And the bishops who helped found our own diocese, coming from both Hutu and Tutsi backgrounds, practiced this way of reconciliation. And their testimony calls us today, in our church of the resurrection, in our diocese and in our province, to follow the way of Jesus. Something more drastic more radical than mere prohibition you shall not murder is needed to heal our broken world. Brothers and sisters, will you join Jesus in his mission as his kingdom emissaries in this world? Then I urge you, be reconciled to one another. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.